Welcome to the GRF On The Go podcast. The subject matter experts at GRF CPAs and Advisors created this podcast to offer insights on current topics, as well as new ideas and best practices that your team can apply today. This podcast was originally presented as a live webinar. CPE information provided during the podcast is no longer valid, but if you're interested in watching the video version of this session or accessing the slide deck, visit our website at grfcpa.com forward slash events. Enjoy the episode and remember to subscribe for future content. All right. I see people are rolling in. Thank you for joining us. Mac, you want to go ahead and toggle to the next? All right. Um, all right, welcome. I know people are still coming in, but we'll go ahead and get through some of the um, some of the beginning slides here. Um, so, welcome to how to set up a world class whistleblower program. Very timely topic, and I'm very excited to have you all with us. I'm Melissa Musser. I am the partner and director of Risk It Advisory Services here at GRF. I am a CPA, so I am an um, auditor by trade. And then I'm also a certified information system auditor, a CISA. So I have overseen um, cybersecurity programs for um, many, many years, both at nonprofit and for-profit public um, companies. And I'm also a CITP, a certified information technology professional. I am the past president of the Institute of Internal Auditors uh, DC chapter, and I'm currently on the board. I absolutely love internal auditing. And there's a lot of intersections here with whistleblower and it's touching all types of topics such as ESG, the new fraud risk management, um, you know, so now's now's a real important time and real important um, session that we're really excited to share with you, but I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Mac to introduce himself. Thanks, Melissa. I'm Mac Lillard. I'm a senior manager with GRF in the Risk and Advisory Services Department. Um, I'm a CPA, a certified internal auditor, and a certified fraud examiner. So today's topic is um, extremely important to, to me personally. Um, also work with the Institute of Internal Auditors as the vice president of program. So if anybody has any input on some um, you know, educational materials or future webinars. Would love to hear that. Always trying to find new content to deliver to uh, the community. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for taking time out of your busy days to come, come um, be here with us and listen to what we feel is an extremely important topic. All right, thanks, Max. So wish we could be here with you in person, shake your hand, um, but we cannot. It's just a webinar. <laughs> but you can submit some questions through the chat. We strongly encourage you to find us on LinkedIn. We love to connect. Uh, we're always sharing information on LinkedIn, or you can send us a LinkedIn message. We really want to um, help and be of assistance. I mean, we check out our website too. We have lots of resources. We really worked hard updating it um, with, with all sorts of content. So check us out, do some training. If you have a board and you'd like to get them trained, let us know. We'd love to do some complimentary training for your board as well. This is um, really important. Um, the times are very interesting, and we are going to go through that um, here. But a little bit about GRF, CPAs and advisors, just going back to the previous slide just for a second there, Mac. Um, so we are an audit and advisory firm headquartered in the Washington, D.C. metro region, and we service clients across the United States and worldwide. And um, so some of the different um, services we provide is just traditional audit and tax, um, outsourced accounting, as well as technology solutions. If you're looking to change your um, accounting, 
ERP system. Uh, enterprise risk management is, is really big. We get really excited about this topic and we love helping folks with that. Um, internal audit solutions, co-sourcing, or just doing specific risk reviews for one-off one audits like a payroll audit. Um, fraud and forensics um, is a big area. And you know this is Mac's um, passion is uh, the fraud and forensics, um, but he also leads a lot of our internal audit and um, other engagements as well. And cybersecurity, we have an amazing cybersecurity team and we have, you know, some of the most up-to-date software. We're very nimble in that regard. And that's where, you know, we also have um, some whistleblower software. So we're always looking for solutions for our clients that are affordable, that are right-sized. And so we're really excited to talk with you all about that today. So also before we uh, get started today, I'd also just like to invite everybody to join us in the fall for the second part of this series. Once you've learned the importance of a whistleblower program, you might be wondering, where do I go from here? What's the next step? We're going to cover the, all that and more in part two. We'll also be joined by Jeffrey Tenenbaum, one of the nation's leading nonprofit attorneys. So stay tuned for more after this webinar. Great. Yes, thanks. Yes, definitely stay tuned because it's like, all right, now we set up a whistleblower platform and now we're getting you know, reports in and what do we do? How do we follow up with an investigation and, you know, um, some legal advice or, you know, input from Jeff. So yeah, that'll be a really good one to check into. And so after this webinar, if you have some input on what you would like to see covered that maybe you didn't see covered today, we will work to include that in the webinar, um, I think coming up in October. So moving on to um, just some background on the current landscape, as you know, um, just the world is is rapidly changing. Um, you know, processes are moving to digital platforms, and with that, corruption is is like evolving. Um, increased vulnerabilities, increased ransomware risk, data breaches, fraudulent activity. We are really seeing um, a huge rise in this area, and a really big intersection between cyber and fraud risk. Um, obviously, reputation risk, you know, something can be posted um, and all of a sudden it's viral, right? Um, some kind of complaint about, you know, an employee or, or different types of things. So, you know, the reputation risk, um, you know, around ESG or DEI or different topics, um, you know, workplace safety, um, you, you want to get that information before someone feels that they need to go, you know, public with something. You want to be able to, um, you know, handle things sooner rather than later. And so it's more important than ever to have a mechanism for folks to be able to report. And we're also noticing that, um, you know, folks are losing sight of the basics. And, you know, I think it's because we're overwhelmed. Maybe we're in a different environment. We're remote, um, you know, as we're changing systems. And these systems are supposed to be helping us. But sometimes we're losing sight of some basic internal controls and there's some breakdowns and we want folks to have an avenue to report and discuss where that's breaking down and also the basics of just a good thriving culture and the importance of having ethics and integrity and encouraging folks to be ethical. Um, we're seeing a slight decline overall in ethics and the way that folks are conducting themselves. So I think we need to get back to the basics the importance of our people and educating them on the importance of you know trust and integrity and a good culture and I think a whistleblower program, um, however you want to call it, is just really um, enforcing ways for folks to communicate and speak up and encouraging that. So just just some more background. Uh, if you've seen some of my webinars, I always like to talk about this. So this came out in 2020. I think you may have heard of 
it was the three lines of defense and we were all waiting for it to come out. And then it came out and it was just the three lines model. And at first I kind of laughed because it didn't seem like much of a change, but I do really appreciate the, the simplicity. I am a fan of keeping things simple. I do not like to overcomplicate things. And it really is interesting when you pause and you think about it, um, you know, we're, we're no longer on defense, right? We want to be on offense and around and, you know, just uh, the year before that, both ERM and, uh, you know, the ISO COSO models were revamped to focus on strategy, right? If you're doing risk management, you're not focused on strategy, you're doing it wrong. Now, when you're doing internal controls or you have your three lines, if you're not on offense, you're doing it wrong. So I really, I really like that. And maybe we need to think about that when it comes to whistleblowers as well. You'll notice in the old model, um, risk management is its own kind of department, there's nothing wrong with risk management being its own department, but the way that the organization views that is like no one else is responsible for risk management other than them. It's their problem, not ours. So moving over to this new model, really ERM, you know, everyone's a risk manager. You know, everyone, it, it changes the culture of the organization. Everyone can play a part. Now, it could be through an anonymous whistleblower platform, or maybe it's just talking to your manager or whoever you report to or whoever you feel comfortable, but then also allowing those outside the organization, stakeholders, you know, um, different partners to also be able to communicate those that you serve in, in some sort of platform and really changing the culture of the organization. So then also, because again, a lot of things are moving and shaking. Um, so COSO just released um, a fraud risk management guide. So very timely. Um, so, I mean, I believe that only just came out a couple months ago, so go check it out. I know it's available on the IIA website, uh, I think probably the AICPA website as well. I think it's like around $60 or something like that. But um, I think the last time it was updated was in 2016, and a lot has changed since then. So they really kind of updated it. Um, they were trying to show the interrelation between the new, you know, the ERM and the different COSO, you know, internal control frameworks and how those are interrelated. Um, also talked about data analytics, but there's also a good focus on whistleblowers. So you're going to really kind of see this theme that I'm trying to, um, you know, emphasize here that this is really important part of it. And another thing that they focused on was having good fraud controls um, isn't just about catching the fraud. It's also about just preventing it in general, because if they know that management and governance is watching and they're active and there's a good ethical culture, folks are just not going to even jump on that opportunity. It's just not going to happen to begin with, right? We want to be preventative, right? We don't, again, that gets back to being on offense. All right. So that's kind of what we're we're looking to try to do. So I just wanted to let you know about this other resource that's out there for you as well. Here are some of the topics. They're talking about fraud deterrence, right? We want to deter because, you know, having a whistleblower program, maybe you don't get a bunch of, you know, whistleblower, you know, things coming in because folks know, gosh, you know, once I do this, someone can report. So it's a deterrent as well as letting you know when things happen. So, you know, those charged with governance, right? It's important for management to have buy-in for anything that you do, whether it's cyber or any initiative, a new technology investment. If those charged with governance or the, the tone at the top isn't there, it's all going to fail. So obviously that's the first most important thing is to have management buy-in. But then you want to be conducting periodic assessments so that people know that you're looking um, and then also when something, when there is something that happens, we want to be able to respond timely. And again, a whistleblower program will help you with that um, logging kind of, you know, different situations in that needs to be uh, investigated and having reporting in place, um, discovering um, frauds or wrongdoings more timely, and then appropriately disciplining. 
So again, that is all in the COSO, the new COSO um, framework that you can that you can look at. That was kind of more of a summary of that what was in there. But I also wanted to note, and this wasn't in the framework. This is actually from um, Transparency International. I was pulling some examples down, um, and I think I have some more information from them. But they're another good um, resource for whistleblowers, Transparency International. But obviously, you know, we, we're talking about fraud. Uh, you know, certified fraud examiners, they put out a lot of information on whistleblowers, but we're also talking about things beyond technical financial fraud, right? We're talking about reporting workplace safety violations, uh, environmental protection violations, safety and quality. And even another example is just academic misconduct in, within educational institutions. Um, this is going to grow um, in importance and is already growing um, with the growth of ESG. So we're going to see, uh, we want to see mechanisms for governance to be able to collect that information in order to manage their ESG uh, programs. And here you go, ESG. So I pulled this down. So COSO recently, there's a lot going on and COSO has been very, very busy. <laughs> and so they recently put this out a couple months ago and it's kind of like internal controls over financial reporting. We, you know, we use that for SOX, Sarbanes-Oxley and different controls over financial reporting that you see in the financial statements. Well, now they've come out with um, internal controls over sustainability reporting. And so here's a link to that document. It's new, there's a lot of frameworks, there's a lot of confusion, but they did recently put this out and this will be helpful. Um, a lot of guidance for public companies, but I think non-public companies can read it and, and you know get some really good information on how to build a reporting framework or just how to build their ESG program. And, and you'll notice I circled whistleblower policy, right? And you can just kind of make sense why that's important. Um, and I'll just also point out that um, data privacy on the social end, and you'll see data protection on the governance end. So sometimes when you don't think about cybersecurity, it definitely is part of ESG, especially if you don't have a big E lift in your organization, your big lift may be around privacy. I just wanted to throw that out there. So um, we did have a question come in when, um, when folks were registering for this, and I really do appreciate the question. And someone mentioned that, you know, sometimes whistleblower could have a negative connotation and, um, you know, that's a, that's a really uh, good point because even the term risk can have a negative connotation with an organization. You know, when we do our ERM engagements, sometimes, you know, we can form what we call maybe a risk council. But lately, we've, we've seen some organizations prefer to call them strategy councils because people want to seat at the strategy table. They don't always want to seat at the risk table, even though they're talking about the same thing, right? Because we should be talking about the risk to our strategy, right? So why not call it a strategy? Because, I mean, that's kind of what it is, right? So we could change the language here, right? An ethics champion, an integrity advocate, a compliance ally. And this kind of goes along with being proactive, right? Because if you're whistleblowing, you know, maybe that's more defensive. And maybe we can change this to be, you know, more proactive and strategic and, um, you know, kind of change the culture and the terminology um, within the organization. So I thought that was a really great question. And I'll be turning it over to Mac to talk a little bit about the regulations. Thanks, Melissa. And um, just before I get into this, I did see that a question came in. And thank you, John, for, for doing that, because I did mean to touch on that at the beginning. You know, we do love for these webinars to be interactive. We want to give everybody the information that they're here to get, right? So please feel free to use that chat function, the question and answer function throughout. We'll do our best to answer these live for you. Anything that we don't get the opportunity to address, we can follow up in an email, uh, provide you a written response. Uh, but the first question that came in is, do you recommend 
staff report to their manager, HR, or internally, or first to the third-party hotline. And I think we'll talk about that in some of the subsequent slides, but really whatever the individual reporting is most comfortable with. Um, you know, using the hotline or the platform does allow for a little bit more of confidentiality or anonymity. Um, some people do feel uncomfortable reporting to a direct supervisor. So really whatever the individual reporting is most comfortable with. Also just kind of in favor of reporting through a hotline or a whistleblower software to encourage individuals to do that is it centralizes everything in one location. So it makes it easier to catalog all of those allegations coming in and a little bit easier to follow up on. Um, but in all honesty, whatever whatever method works to get the information and get the allegation um, you know, is, is the preferable method. So now talking about the, the uh, regulations just a little bit before we get started. Um, everybody's familiar, I think, with Sarbanes-Oxley, which was passed in 2002 as a result of some of these infamous fraud cases like Enron. Um, really what this helps do is put in place all these different controls to protect fraud from occurring. And some of those provisions are specifically related to the protection of whistleblowers or employees of publicly traded companies who report violations. It includes, includes anti-retaliation clauses that we'll talk about when we go through policies, procedures. And it also includes timelines for actually filing these complaints or these allegations, noting that it should be within 100 of days, 180 days of the alleged violation, or when the individual becomes aware of the alleged violation. So relating this to nonprofit organizations, while they're not required to be compliant with SOX, um, they do have to disclose within their 990 whether or not they have a whistleblower policy. So this information is tracked through these charity watchdogs like GuideStar, Charity Watch, Charity Navigator. And, and if you're indicating no on that, then that's going to be reflected in your rating. And obviously your rating is going to go down. But also equally as importantly as if you're checking yes, you better have a whistleblower policy because then you're disclosing on a government form that you have something. And if you don't have that in place, that's just opening up your organization to, to unwanted liability. Then I wanted to jump into talking about the new European Union whistleblower directive. Um, again, this is really aimed at providing additional protection for whistleblowers. So they released this directive um, focusing on the following items, requiring an anonymous reporting channel for whistleblowers, protecting the identity of that whistleblower. Um, so making sure that you're appropriately monitoring access to the, uh, the software, the hotline, email, whatever channel that is. And then it also assigns reporting deadlines, acknowledging the complaint within seven days of receipt and providing feedback to that whistleblower within three months of the complaint, which is really important, establishing those, those timelines to make sure that these are followed up in a timely and appropriate manner. And then it also includes anti-retaliation protocol for whistleblowers and involved parties. That is something that's taking on a lot of emphasis within new regulations, making sure that organizations have a policy and a process for following up on any claims of retaliation against potential whistleblowers. I'm going to pause here to go through the first polling question. Have you read the most recent ACFE or the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners report to the nations? All right, looks like a, a lot of people haven't read that. Would definitely direct everybody to this. We're going to go through some of the, the high level statistics, um, but it's a really great piece of information. They put it out on an annual basis, just covering um, statistics over occupational fraud, some of the controls that are really on the rise, schemes that are on the rise, and really useful statistics broken down by industry, profession, role, um, 
and you know something relevant for for people at all levels. So would definitely recommend uh, taking a look at that if you haven't. But again, I think we'll jump into some of the uh, statistics here. So just wanted to go through through these at a high level. Um, but asset misappropriation through fraudulent disbursement schemes accounts for the highest percentage of frauds. Um, and organizations under 50 million actually account for the highest percentage of occupational fraud. So, you know, these smaller organizations with a little bit less capacity for robust internal internal control processes result in higher median losses and more opportunity to commit fraud. Additionally, with these changes in internal control mechanisms, as Melissa mentioned, with everything switching to digital platforms or electronic payment methods, there's been a further increase in the opportunity for fraudsters to take advantage of outdated or improperly designed internal controls. And I also wanted to focus on this metric because I personally work with a lot of nonprofit organizations and a lot of my clients fall um, you know, under that threshold of about $50 million. So this is really relevant to me as well as many of the people that are likely here with us today. Uh, and very commonly, I, I, when I talk to my clients, you know, they actually are lured into this kind of false sense of security that they're not at a higher level of risk because they're not on anybody's radar. There's not as much opportunity to, to remove frauds. They, they have very strict budgets. They're monitoring very closely because they don't have the resources. Um, but again, fraudsters are aware of the fact that they don't have the budgets to allocate towards really proactive measures uh, or robust internal control systems. So again, just wanted to, uh, to clarify that um, and, you know, in support of, of this statistic. The next uh, item here you can see within these screenshots is that perpetrators really exist at all levels, but the higher up the fraud, the more costly. Um, you know, again, if you're misrepresenting financial information, that likely takes somebody at a higher level, and that could cause significant um, monetary fines, penalties for financial misreputation. It also does significant reputational damage that can take years to recover. Um, and out of the fraudsters that they identified within this study, only 6% have prior convictions, meaning your normal background checks that you do when onboarding or on a regular basis, these might not actually provide evidence of a current or future fraudster. Um, you know, perpetrators, they most likely don't commit fraud from the second they start working until the day they retire, right? At some point along the way, the opportunity the rationalization, the motivation pushes them past some sort of internal threshold that leads them to committing fraud. So again, it's very important to stay proactive and monitor all of your employees, regardless of level, tenure at the organization, because things change over time. And the last statistic we're gonna focus on here, I think is directly relevant to today. Again, with this new electronic environment, um, it's becoming easier for perpetrators to actually conceal their fraudulent activity, you know, uh, back even just five to 10 years ago, when people were using a lot of physical documentation in order to falsify an invoice, you had to use the same letterhead, the same format, you may even have to obtain a wet signature on an invoice or payment. Now it's as simple as opening a PDF, clicking edit and changing a few key data points around and voila, you have a perfectly passable invoice. Uh, payment authorization form uh, that's very easy to to slip past again anybody who's not watching with a, a close eye. so organizations are allocating more resources to preventative and detective measures you can see in this statistic here that organizations with hotlines hotlines are the the most common form of a whistleblower channel these have increased by 16 percent over the last 10 years fraud training having an anti-fraud policy or program 
um, and then actually performing proactive fraud assessment have all increased. So these are all things that your organization should consider if they're not something that's on your radar right now. And with that, we're gonna jump into our second polling question. So does your organization provide annual training over the anti-fraud program and policies? And thank you, John, again, for putting the uh, link to the ACFE report to the nations into the chat. Really appreciate that. All right, and right now it looks like um, again, the majority of responses say that no, they're not doing annual training over the anti-fraud program and policies. You know, again, most organizations, they have regular all staff meetings. They're performing some sort of annual training, whether it be you know, a strategic planning meeting, whether it be your cyber training, ethics training, adding or incorporating you know, information over your anti-fraud program and policies is an easy way to add this on. You already have that annual standing meeting. Allocate 15, 30, 45 minutes, whatever you feel is necessary to adequately cover your anti-fraud program and policies, just add that as one of the agenda items. Um, but again, something that we highly recommend and something that is on the rise with most organizations, as you saw in that last little uh, ACFE report to the nation statistic there. And with that, we're going to talk a little bit about creating policies and procedures for the organization. So where to start, we always recommend performing a baseline assessment of the policies and procedures from all across the organization, whether it be human resources, whether it be your legal, whether it be your anti-fraud program, if you do have a formal anti-fraud program established. And we want to talk just a little bit about some of the baseline policies that you hopefully already have in place, that being the code of conduct, whistleblower policy, conflict of interest, and we'll talk briefly about the information security policy. While that's not necessarily specific to fraud, having a detailed information security policy, highlighting your IT general controls goes a long way in helping to prevent and detect fraud. So some of these baseline policies, again, a lot of organizations have these in place, um, but unfortunately what we see in practice is that many times these policies are, they're written out, they're established, and then they're not being reviewed and updated on an annual basis in accordance with you know, best practices, uh, making sure that they reflect the current channels in place, the current process, procedures, individuals involved. Um, so that's, you know, if you haven't done that, if you haven't gone back and looked at your policies, we definitely recommend that as a first start as part of your baseline assessment. But just wanted to go through some important elements to consider code of conduct, whether or not you're requiring that to be signed by all of your employees, board members, third parties, subrecipients, and subcontractors. And as it relates to third parties and subrecipients or subcontractors, anybody who has access to your systems, data, information, anyone who's conducting business on behalf of the organization, they should be held to the same standard as any of your employees, as well as your board members. So making sure that they're reviewing the code of conduct on an annual basis, because again, you should be reviewing that and updating it as necessary and signing an attestation that they have read and understand their role and responsibilities as it relates to upholding that code of conduct. The whistleblower policy, which we're going to talk about in a little bit more detail today, um, but just making sure that again, your employees are trained on that annually. Is this embedded within the employee handbook and the code of conduct or another document that they're signing and attesting to understanding their responsibilities? Does this include the appropriate follow-up measures, assign accountability, and establish reporting guidelines, timeframes? Many times what we'll see with the whistleblower policy is there may be a, a one-page PDF or maybe even just something as, you know, as small as a paragraph just noting the process to 
report to your immediate supervisor, or if you're not comfortable reporting to your immediate supervisor, report to somebody above them, a board member, a trusted member of the organization. Um, and while, again, it's great to have even something as, as simple as that, we do recommend taking that a step forward, detailing out the step-by-step -step process to actually file an allegation, um, communicate the, the process to anybody who is filing an allegation as to what they can expect for next steps, assign accountability within that policy that states this group or this individual is going to be responsible for um, performing any detailed procedures to follow up on that, implement any sort of remedial or corrective action. And then again, having those established timelines um, for responding to, as we saw within the new EU directive, that's extremely important because if you're in violation of that, then you're in violation of that new directive. So making sure you're responding in a timely manner and that you're actually following up on that, performing the investigation procedures uh, within a timely manner as well. Looking at your conflict of interest policy, similarly to your code of conduct, are employees and board members also required to sign that on an annual basis? Also extending that to any third parties that conduct business on behalf of the organization, making sure that they're also aware um, of the conflict of interest policy and declaring any potential conflicts prior to engaging with them. And then lastly, that information security policy. So does that incorporate the necessary elements to minimize fraud or wrongdoing? Um, looking at your access rights, looking at the acceptable use policy that defines the employee's responsibilities for using your IT assets. We're going to talk about access, access controls uh, in detail a little bit when we talk about the actual software. But for now, I wanted to focus on the whistleblower policy a little bit more. So again, just looking at those critical elements of a whistleblower policy, be going, you know, going beyond that maybe one paragraph or, or one PDF page that gives a high-level overview of the whistleblower policy and responsibilities. So starting with the introduction, what purpose does the policy serve? looking at the scope, saying who, what does it apply to? Again, with that extends to your third parties, your subrecipients, subcontractors, at a minimum, it should apply to all of your employees and board members. Defining all of the critical language uh, within that policy, so defining what a whistleblower is, what, a, what wrongdoing is. Um, you know, again, when people typically think about whistleblowers, they think about fraud, but you can blow the whistle on any kind of wrongdoing, whether it's sexual harassment, verbal harassment, workplace misconduct, safety regulations, as, as Melissa had mentioned, you know, academic misconduct, anything could fall into that bucket of wrongdoing. So making sure that you're clearly defining that. Outlining that step-by-step -step process for reporting. Uh, if you're using a platform, if you're using a hotline, email, clearly defining how somebody goes about actually submitting a whistleblower allegation. Having a statement on confidentiality, statement that Confidentiality will be maintained to the fullest extent possible. And then non-retaliation, which again, as I mentioned, is extremely important. Um, and a lot of new directives and regulations are coming out to protect those whistleblowers. So a statement regarding a zero tolerance policy, similar to zero tolerance policy against fraud, zero tolerance against retaliation, uh, actions to be taken against alleged retaliation and consequences for those retaliators. And then the investigation process should also be addressed within that policy. Um, just a step-by-step -step process for how management will follow up on a complaint, substantiate that complaint, take remedial action. But again, we're gonna cover that in detail in our, in our next webinar. So not gonna talk too much about that right now. But with that, we're gonna launch into our third polling question. Does your organization have an anonymous channel to submit whistleblower complaints?
And I'm just looking through some of the questions. Could you please share the uh, PowerPoint later? Yes, I, I do believe we're gonna share um, not only a recording of this, but also the PowerPoint deck afterwards so that you have this information available. And then I did see another question, love thoughts on educating consultants, vendors, volunteers on the whistleblower policy. Uh, great question. Um, you know, again, similar to, you know, whether or not you're doing annual anti-fraud training over your policies, procedures for your employees, I would extend that to your consultants, uh, vendors, volunteers, as part of your contracting process or your due diligence process. Um, you could actually require them to undergo a specific training, maybe the same training that you require of your employees to educate them on your whistleblower policy. If necessary, have them sign the similar attestation that states they have read and understood their role and responsibility as it relates to protecting whistleblowers and filing a potential complaint. Um, so again, I would hold them to the same standard that you hold your employees and board members uh, if, again, they are a, a critical vendor. Now, what defines a critical vendor? That is something that we could do an entire other hour-long webinar on. Uh, but again, anybody who maybe your top 10% of vendors that you rely on in a substantial capacity, anybody who has access to data information systems or anybody who you rely on in a significant capacity for programmatic activities, operations, or anybody who is authorized to conduct or represent your organization, um, again, should be treated the same way as an employer or board member and be required to undergo the same training and, if necessary, attestation um, that they've read and understand that policy. And does your organization have an anonymous channel to submit whistleblower complaints? Very happy to see that the majority of uh, respondents have responded yes to this. I would be curious to to see what uh, mechanisms you all have in place, but that's great to see that the majority do have an anonymous channel. And with that, I'm gonna jump into establishing your whistleblower reporting channel. And I see that somebody, I think somebody has raised their hand. I don't believe anybody has the, the ability to unmute themselves. Uh, so if somebody has a question or a comment, feel free to throw that into the chat function or Q&A function and we'll do our best to address that. So just talking about what reporting channels are available. We've talked a little bit about this already, so I won't spend too much time on it, but hotlines, emails, web-based platforms, these, these mechanisms on the left, these are definitely the ones that are on the rise, kind of most commonplace right now because of the confidentiality, the anonymity, and just the fact that they're a little bit easier to actually submit those complaints through. These, these areas on the right here, mail and fax, as well as direct reporting. Um, while direct reporting is definitely something that you should still have within your policy, still provide as a mechanism. Uh, again, because of the lack of anonymity or confidentiality, it does sometimes deter a whistleblower who may you know, be a little bit more weary of being retaliated against by any of their employees. But if that is your, your only mechanism in place, would recommend having a standardized form to make sure that again, as a, a supervisor receives a complaint that they're asking all of the appropriate questions, capturing the who, what, when, where, why in a standardized format so that again, it's in line with any other allegations being received. If your only mechanisms are mail and fax outside of direct reporting, um, it would definitely say that you're behind the eight ball on this. I think all millennials and especially Gen Z probably don't even know how to, how to send a fax. If you ask me to fax you something right now, I think I just stare blankly at you. Um, so. If those are your only mechanisms, definitely recommend implementing one of these other, other channels here. 
So today we're going to spend some time talking specifically about whistleblower software, which is the platform uh, GRF uses that we implement for our clients. Um, so we're going to talk a lot about that to provide specific examples, screenshots of the system. But the areas that we're going to cover are inherent in any platform that you choose. Um, so these are really important things to consider when doing your due diligence, when sourcing any other vendor, um, when evaluating your own process, these are all areas that you should consider, questions you should ask when um, redesigning your process. So again, these online platforms have grown in popularity due to the anonymity, um, user friendliness, and the standardization of the process, streamlining the entire case management process from submission to all the way to um, you know, remedial action. They're also very affordable. So links to these websites can then be provided on the website to make this available to the public so that anybody can submit a whistleblower allegation should they become aware of any uh, alleged wrongdoing. They provide templated forms with customized data fields, which again allow for standardization of the process and to make sure you're capturing all relevant information. Automated notifications can then be sent to the applicable personnel to make sure that you do your best to uh, conform to any of those timelines that, might, that you might be subject to based on where you operate. User access rights can then be assigned to internal and external members of the investigation team to appropriately limit access to that information. And lastly, it allows for real-time communication with whistleblowers in an anonymous format. And I know a lot of people are kind of scratching your head right now, maybe thinking, how can you communicate with somebody if it's done anonymous, anonymously? And I'm going to cover that in one of the subsequent slides. So just kind of where to start when looking or when considering a vendor or a new platform to utilize. Um, so again, due to the sensitivity of this information contained within these platforms, it's important to do your due diligence as you would with, with any platform, uh, but making sure that they haven't had any issues with past breaches that might compromise the information within the platform. Issues with financial viability, this is one that often gets overlooked. Uh, but again, because these platforms are kind of a, a newer concept in the last decade or so, some of these, these organizations, these software providers are very young, they're, they're newer organizations. So the last thing you want is to completely redesign your process, implement a platform, receive a handful of allegations, get halfway through your investigation process, and all of a sudden the, the software vendor goes out of business all of their information, all of your information is then transferred to some holding company or to some third party company and you no longer have access to that. So making sure that the uh, vendor that you're utilizing is financially viable, that they're going to be around for the long term is really important. And again, something that's often overlooked. Are they able to provide compliance with best practice frameworks? Do they undergo pen testing? Um, as you can see here, whistleblower software, they put this right on their website. They're ISO 27001 certified. They undergo an ISAE 3000 audit and they do pen testing. And then lastly, has this been reviewed and demoed by your IT department? Very important to get sign off from them to make sure that you're not opening your organization to any additional liability through this relationship. And the, the information, the data contained within these platforms is very sensitive. So I would say, you know, the due diligence process is, is really emphasized and plays a much larger role when looking at um, these particular software vendors. So with that, I'm gonna go into some of the functionality of the whistleblower software. And again, while these screenshots are specific to this system, these are very important things to consider uh, when vetting any of your potential vendors or when looking at your own system. So managing access rights, again, is really important to just restricting the, the access to this information, maintaining the confidentiality of all of that information. So 
In accordance with best practices, you want to minimize the number of users with access to the platform, restrict those access rights based on the principle of least privilege, and monitor and review those on a regular basis. So just going to look at a couple of these screenshots here. So this item I'm circling here at the top right, this is the dashboard that's right on the left-hand side of your screen at all times. And you can see it's got users and access configuration right there. It's not embedded within your settings. They've identified this as something that's extremely important, so they make it right there in your face at all times to make sure that you're appropriately assigning those, monitoring those. Again, it's not something that's buried within another portion of the website. It's something that's upfront at all times, very easy to go in there and change. Again, super user-friendly. You'll see this uh, graphic here kind of at the top left. This is how you set up users, very easy. You'll see that two of these individuals are checked. And again, what this allows for, and I'll go into this a little bit more detail, but you can set up different users in the system and not all users have access to all of the cases. You might wanna use a particular advisor. You might wanna use somebody internally to access a particular case. And that way you can set them up as users to assign cases to later, but they don't have access to all of the cases. In this case, myself and my colleague here, Darren, we would be the ones managing the platform. We would have access to see all cases. Our colleague, Tom, would be brought in on a need to know basis. And very importantly, what you'll see in this last graphic down here at the bottom, and I hope everybody can see this, but you'll see email verified and two-factor authentication, an extra layer of security that is non-negotiable, requires two-factor authentication for any user being added to the system. Again, whether or not you use whistleblower software or another platform, making sure that that is an absolute necessity to just help minimize the, uh, the opportunity for a breach. And multi-factor isn't necessarily a foolproof system, but it does add an additional layer of security and makes it difficult for any kind of hacker or perpetrator to get access to the system. This is one thing I love about the, the platform is it allows you to create these different departments or regions to organize your complaints. So for large or decentralized organizations that might have multiple teams responsible for following up on whistleblower allegations, depending on the office, the particular department that it's related to, this is really helpful for just helping to delegate those and assign the, the appropriate investigation team based on the nature of the allegation. So I provided a couple examples here. You can break it down by department. If something is related to financial statement fraud, maybe you report it to, you know, under accounting, uh, if something is related to harassment or workplace misconduct, that might go to human resources. And this provides the whistleblower themselves when filing the allegation to select one of these drop-down options, or they can just report it in general to the company. For any INGOs or people with offices, all over the world. You can then separate that out based on location so that the Africa team or the Asia team only has access to cases filed related to operations in Africa or in Asia. Uh, so I think that this is extremely helpful just to, again, help organize, categorize all of your complaints and make sure that they're going to the appropriate personnel within the company. Jumping into the reporting form itself, these are highly customizable. So again, making sure that if you, again, you know, this is, this is for whistleblower software, but if you're looking at other vendors during your due diligence process, asking about the customization of the reporting forms, asking, you know, if there's a template that they have to follow, that they have to subscribe to, or if you're able to change data fields, pick and choose, add or remove information that's relevant to your organization based on your context. So again, within these screenshots, you'll see that and this is from the actual site that somebody would see when they're going to file an allegation. They have the option to report confidentially 
or anonymously. And you might again be asking yourself, why even provide both? Well, reporting confidentially actually provides an additional layer of protection for whistleblowers in the case of retaliation. And that actually will kind of differ depending on what country you operate in. Um, so reporting anonymously provides more peace of mind, but there's still the possibility that a perpetrator or the individual who's um, you know, having the whistle blown against them, that they could come to their own conclusion or that one of your colleagues could and then ultimately retaliate anyways. So reporting confidenti confidentially um, does provide a little bit more um, protection for the whistleblower should they be become a victim of retaliation. And then what's nice here, again, you can assign a category, whether it's bribery, misconduct, um, you select that department or the region in which it's related. And then you also upload any sort of supporting documentation. So that way the allegation is corroborated and it's not just hearsay. So again, since I mentioned this is highly customizable, one thing that I always add in is a checkbox that actually requires the whistleblower to certify that their allegation is being made in good faith and that they understand that allegations made not in good faith could be subject to investigation and disciplinary action the same way a retaliator or a perpetrator would be. Um, so again, that is another clause that you should include within your whistleblower policy is reporting in good faith and making sure that employees aren't just reporting something through the software because they have an ax to grind with their supervisor or another colleague. This also allows you to provide status updates and communication, not only to the investigation team, but also to the whistleblower themselves, as I mentioned before, communicating with that anonymous, anonymous whistleblower through the platform. So it allows for updating the state as to whether or not the allegation was received, if it's under investigation. Here's where I mentioned the users with access. This is where you could then assign additional advisors or individuals that you would like to bring into the investigation team based on their subject matter expertise. Uh, if it's something that's HR related, related to workplace misconduct, you might have an HR firm on retainer who can then um, perform the investigative procedures. Or if it's fraud related, you might have a forensic investigator, a certified fraud examiner who will then be assigned this case and be responsible for following up on it. You can also update the severity ranking. You know, many organizations may choose to treat every allegation the same level of severity. But as we all know, you know, as it relates to fraud, certain things may be more material than others. Um, you know, if you're talking about financial statement misrepresentation, that could potentially be, you know, in the millions of dollars, have reputational concerns, and all sorts of other monetary fines and penalties compared to an employee who maybe steals $200 of petty cash out of the safe within the office. You can decide a severity ranking to that. Um, which might just help your investigation team understand the importance of following up on that in a timely manner um, and might just help to prioritize that should you receive a high volume of allegations. And then here you're actually able to send encrypted messages to the whistleblower. So what happens when that whistleblower files an allegation is that they're provided a unique code that allows them to go sign into the, the whistleblower software, input that code, and then they can actually pull up the allegation that they made, the file, everything, and communicate back and forth with the investigation team. So again, this is something to ask about during the due diligence process. If you're looking at other vendors, make sure that there's a way to communicate back and forth. Again, under that new EU directive, it does require you to respond to a whistleblower within seven days, um, just acknowledging receipt, and then provide follow-up within three months um, of the allegation being received. So this provides you that channel, and it's all in one centralized location, which is great.
So with that, I just wanted to summarize some key takeaways from today. Um, so again, where do we go from here? You know, research and understand the regulations that apply to your organization is very important um, because again, you may be subject to, to certain penalties, fines, if you're not in compliance with those regulations. Form a baseline assessment, starting with just looking at your policies, procedures, identify those gaps and areas for improvement. Consider emerging technologies to bring in-house if you don't currently use a platform or a hotline look into those avenues um, and just again whatever is uh, most appropriate for your context have a channel that allows you to report anonymously and then lastly attend our next webinar that's going to cover the detailed investigation process consider considerations relative to investigating an allegation planning strategy gathering evidence conducting interviews documenting the findings and performing any kind of follow-up or remedial action uh, but with that, thank you everyone so much for your time. I'm going to turn things back over to Melissa to just summarize some uh, key benefits. Great. Thanks, Mac. That was that was great. And I just wanted to respond further to the question about federal protection. Now, uh, nonprofits, it is a little tricky. Now, those um, protections do, you know, flow down through federal grants and contracts, um, but there will there may be some nonprofits that are not covered, although there are state laws. Definitely suggest talking to an attorney. We will have uh, Jeffrey Tenenbaum here, um, you know, in the fall to talk about that. But that does, you know, really, and I'm glad that the question came through. It really highlights the importance of having a anti-retaliation. It's, it's even more crucial for nonprofits to have that within their policies and procedures so that folks can feel comfortable um, to report, um, but I would strongly suggest working with a labor attorney or legal counsel to really understand the different states and the different, you know, um, laws and protections, but really an organization should have that for their employees, and that's a really important part of uh, a really healthy whistleblower um, program. So some of the additional benefits um, for having a whistleblower system. And again, um, I am pulling a lot of this from Transparency International. They're a really great resource, but um, it is a public signal of commitment to integrity and social responsibility. We're really gonna be seeing this area grow. Um, you're gonna be hearing a lot about this. We really try to be time very timely um, with what we put out there, what we invest in. We really wanna help our clients. Um, so that's why we're doing this webinar today. And as you noticed with ESG, um, this is gonna be a growing, very important area. I really like the question also about partners and vendors. Um, I think that's really important. I love that um, with the onboarding. I'm also, you know, as you can tell, I'm a, you know, I oversee our cybersecurity as well. And I think it's just as important with having them know how to report, uh, you know, wrongdoing. Um, they should also be aware of your baseline information security policies and procedures as well. So you really need to have a good onboarding um, with them, because as we talked about with digital transformation, they, you know, you're the one who's going to be in the newspaper if they lose, you know, PII data, right? So it's an important part of making sure that they comply and what are you doing to make sure that they comply and that they're aware of things. So fantastic question. Um, so prevention and mitigation of liability as having the benefits of having a whistleblower program, um, mitigation of financial losses. Um, you know, you'll see that in a lot of areas, um, definitely in procurement, we see that. We've seen a lot of uptick in unusual activity, Mac and I have seen. Um, definitely, uh, there's a lot going on and would love to see some ways we can nip that in the bud instead of things going on for decades, right? We'll, we'll run into something and something's been going on for decades. Like this vendor was set up or something would love, you know, and there's always somebody that knew something. 
we want to really encourage folks to report. Um, so obviously, continuous improvement is important. Strengthening um, the organization's reputation. We're going to see that. We're going to see a lot more ESG disclosures, and this is going to be an important part of how you demonstrate that compliance. We're going to be seeing a lot of focus on this area. And just the overall enhancement of the culture. Um, I think those are some really important um, aspects of implementing um, a really good, robust system in this regard. Um, so we have, here's some resources for you. Um, whistleblower investigation services, we can, you know, provide you with a demo if you're, if you're looking for some alternative solutions with, um, within your organization and subscribe to our newsletter. We're always putting out some good information. And I guess there is a good article or a white paper on how internal audit can support whistleblower investigations. And be sure to stay tuned for our next webinar and submit questions. You guys had great questions. Keep them coming. We will work hard to answer them. That's what we want to do. And then we'll work on um, providing you with the answers to some of those questions and going through in more detail what to do. And we'll give you some examples of different types of complaints that could come through and what are some different ways to go about them. Again, what we issue is not legal advice. We're just, you know, we're just here. Always consult with an attorney um, when a situation does arise, but we are giving you some best practice ideas. And here is our contact information. Feel free to email us or reach out to us on LinkedIn. And uh, it looks like we're almost at the end. I don't know, Mac, do we have a little bit of time? Is there another question that's come through? It looks like we have five minutes. Yeah, I did actually receive just one question directly, um, just asking about the cost of a whistleblower platform. Uh, so again, depending on, on the vendor that you use, I think they all have different pricing models. Some might be an annual fee, some might be based on the number of users, some are based on the number of employees. Um, I can't speak to all vendors. I know whistleblower software, they just do an annual license depending on the number of employees you have as that's kind of representative of um, an approximation of how many uh, complaints may actually come through the system. Um, you know, they don't charge any additional fee for adding users. You can add as many users as you'd like um, any, any amount of users that, again, fits the context of your organization and how you set up the platform. Uh, they also don't charge, you know, I know we kind of talked about breaking it down by department or region. You can set up as many regions, departments as you want uh, at no additional cost. So very straightforward, makes it just an annual licensing fee and all of these, you know, depending on the size of your organization, you know, anybody can get this um, for, you know, less than a few thousand dollars. Um, so again, these are very affordable. Um, but again, depending on what vendor you use, they, sh they should probably have a different pricing model. Excellent. Thank you. And I did see one question come in. When is the next webinar? So we are working on uh, finalizing that date. It is going to be sometime in October, though. All right. You are so very welcome. And thank you for attending the webinar. And we will see you all next time. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the GRF on the Co podcast. Visit our website at grfcpa.com for more information about the services we provide, the industries we serve, or to request a quote.